Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, last week we took a week off, but now we're back. We're here to wrap up all of the free agency things. We're going to talk a little bit about our experience with the Scouting Academy so far as kind of a setup for the draft episodes that are coming up pretty soon. It's already the end of March. Yeah, dude. Like the that's, draft's like a month away, like a, like five weeks away, basically. It's been really, it, it's gone like a straight up blur. Things have gone by quickly. So we're going to wrap up free agency. We've got some second wave information to talk about. We're going to talk about one of the things that has been kind of burning on our mind, which is really the idea of positional value. And then we'll round out with some Scouting Academy stuff. But first, but first, I can confirm for those of you that watched Drunk Prospecting, (laughs) that David is indeed wearing his green zippy. (laughs) And he says he's not going to throw up. But I say to that, sir, challenge accepted. Look, man, this thing's comfy. I, I wear this like, I don't know, like half the days of the week at home. So, yeah. And, and I throw up like not on hardly any of those nights. So, yeah, the, the track record, I think, in, you know, in the green jacket's fine. I've got an Austin Beer Works Blood Orange IPA. What are you drinking today, David? Dude, I was uh, actually really excited um, because and it's not even that it's necessarily like this great beer, but it was it's Shiner. They had Shiner up here. Oh, um, yeah. Which I go. was like, oh, man, reminds me of home, uh, which which is awesome. And it's actually so it's their Shiner birthday beer, um, which has some cold brew coffee mixed in there. So oh, I did see that at the ale. store. Yeah. So it's it's actually pretty solid. But um, yeah, I had to had to snag that today when I stopped by the store. Oh man, I've got a I've got a, a stout in the fridge too. Maybe I'll join you here in a little bit. But let's get into the rundown for this week's episode. It is the second wave of free agency that we're going to wrap up on this week's show. And leading the top of the list, this wasn't even a free agent acquisition. This was like a hey, we got our center via trade. We added interior offensive lineman Jeremy Zuta. Uh, I guess in Spain it'd be Zuta. Uh, but we added Zuta in exchange for moving down 12 spots in the sixth round, which is basically chump change at this point. This is a, yeah, it's absolutely nothing. This is a center who was pro football focus's 13th ranked center in 2016. So, David, why were we able to get him for what's basically like AJ Jenkins money? It, it was really funny because they actually, like, there were stories coming out that um, basically they were going to cut him. Like that, and it was just kind of this last minute thing. Apparently, like uh, it must have been on the 49ers radar, and they're like, "Hey, we'll like give you basically nothing for this. Are you cool with that?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." Um, well, I mean, was it a salary issue? Was he just gonna get paid too much money comparatively? Comparatively, like what was going on? What? Why was Baltimore even considering it? Yeah, you know, honestly, that's a good question. I, I didn't really pay too much attention to it from kind of the Baltimore end of things. I don't think his uh, contract was really too outrageous, but I mean, he's sort of getting up there. I mean, it seems like he's probably a cap casualty situation, um, where they just kind of wanted to get that number off, off their books and, um, and, and kind of move maybe a little bit younger direction. I mean, he's going to be, I think this uh, is going to be either his age 30 or 31 season. Yeah. I think um, age 30 season. So, yeah, I I think, you know, for them, it was it was likely just a cap move to kind of free up some space and uh, allocate that elsewhere. But for the 49ers, I mean, again, this is 
kind of a short-term thing uh, where he's basically going to be on the roster. He's under contract at least for uh, for two years. Because of the trade aspect of it, Baltimore still stuck paying whatever was left of his signing bonus. So there really, as far as I'm aware, isn't any um, guaranteed money that the 49ers will have to pay him. So Whenever you trade a player, all of the signing bonus gets accelerated to the original team's cap. So any signing bonus that he may have had is not paid by the 49ers. They just absorb his base salaries. Um, and, and I think the exciting thing with him from the 49ers perspective is that he's been in this zone blocking scheme. I mean, that was, uh, you know, what Baltimore has run uh, there for the past few seasons. So he's got familiarity with that. He's been a, somebody that's kind of a, a better, um, you know, pass blocker than run blocker. But he's but he's pretty balanced. He was he was, uh, you know, kind of ranked. Similarly, when you look at uh, Pro Football Focus's grades, you know, in the run game and the pass game there and, you know, having that familiarity with kind of running heavy outside zone stuff, um, I, I think is is certainly something that's attractive for the 49ers. I, I think, you know, when you look at him compared to Kilgore and, and now the really the, the question is because both Zutah and Kilgore have experience at guard. Zutah, um, he's been at center for the last few seasons, basically since 2013. He's been almost exclusively at center. But he was a guard early on in Tampa when they first drafted him, and he kind of, you know, alternated based on what they needed for his first few seasons there. So um, one of them, I think, is is actually if depending on obviously what happens in the draft and and who else they add there, I, I think it's pretty likely that one of them is going to start at center, one of them is going to start uh, at guard, and then you're probably going to get Garnett at the other guard spot. Would be kind of my early on guess right now. Um, And this is what I I tweeted out after we made the move initially is that effectively with one move with moving up six spots, I'm sorry, 12, 12 spots and moving down 12 spots in the sixth round, you improve two positions on the offensive line because while Kilgore is not going to be, I think that, that Zutas probably a better center than Kilgore. I think Kilgore is still a, a pretty athletic lineman, especially along the interior and he should be better and should be able to beat out Zane Beatles. And so you're upgrading two spots on the interior of the line by moving down 12 spots in the sixth round. I mean, that's 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 the kind of move you want to see. It's a smart move. It improves a need and it costs you almost nothing. Yeah, I mean, you're you're getting, um, you know, a little bit better, a little bit more competitive in the short term. I mean, he's not some like. You know, a lot of people wanted to throw out uh, because of the the importance that Shanahan's place on center and, you know, bringing in Alex Mack and all that stuff like Zuta is not about to have that sort of impact. He's not that type of player, um, but he's he's a solid, like very capable interior offensive lineman. And he is going to uh, be an improvement for the 49ers at that spot. So, yeah, I think as a short term option while you work to get because that was kind of one of the surprising things, I think, of this free agency period was really kind of the lack of attention at offensive line. Um, and I, I think you make a move like this in the short term. And obviously this is, you know, an area that they think that they're going to address another off season, you know, when it comes to finding some pieces there. So you move on to the next move in the second wave of free agency and that's signing wide receiver, Aldrick Robinson. He signed a two year, $4 million deal with 500,000 fully guaranteed David, what kind of player is Aldrick Robinson at the wide receiver position? To me, it's it's kind of funny because we were talking about Marquise Goodwin, you know, during the last episode. And, and to me, Aldrick's really just a more skilled version of Goodwin. So 
You know, he doesn't have maybe quite the like Olympic level deep speed that Goodwin has, but he's still pretty fast. Like he can kind of stretch the defense and and take the top off a little bit there. So he's going to be a threat downfield um, like Goodwin, even though he's he's, uh, you know, kind of a smaller player. He's not a slot guy. Um, he was only in the slot on, you know, just shy of 20 percent of his snaps in 2016. So he is more of an outside receiver. He's going to run those type of routes. You know, he's going to be vertical routes um, and then routes that kind of play off that speed, right? Like uh, comeback routes, you know, those kind of outbreaking routes like that, you know, the, the short quick game stuff, you know, if you're getting a big cushion from the DB there. So uh, he, he's going to do those similar type of things, but I think he's just, you know, a little bit more skilled than Goodwin is. Um, and, and then of course there's the familiarity there with Shanahan's offense. You know, he was with him both in Washington and Atlanta. So, uh, yeah, I, I like the move. I think he's, you know, actually a little bit better player than Goodwin is, but they're going to kind of be competing, I think, for the same snaps. So Aldrick Robinson, at he clocks in at 5'10", 187. At least that's where he's listed on ESPN. And that puts him below the 25th percentile for wide receivers in the NFL, which is is pretty is pretty small. If you were writing a scattering report on him, you'd say he has, I guess, what, adequate size? <laughs> uh, that's that's not that's not big. It's it's kind of funny because you look at his uh, you go look at his mock draftable web and how they how he has it structured there. You know, if you have a player that actually has most of the the, the points in there, the side of the web that's about like size related things, he's basically all packed in the middle. And then the yeah. side that is, you know, all of your athleticism traits like your 40 and all your uh, three cone and short shuttle and all that like is uh, basically out near the max. So. He's a he's a very athletic dude. He's just a little a uh, little undersized, but um, Shanahan's shown that he can kind of you know make use of these type of players. And uh, obviously, he was just with them last year. I mean, he's not going to have the same supporting cast. Obviously, that's going to uh, you know ease some of the burden on there and take a lot of the attention away for him. But um, I, I think that yeah, he's going to come in. I I li- again, I like him a little bit more than Goodwin. I think that he kind of. Uh, takes a lot of his snaps if i were to guess like i just think he's a better player so you've got a, a small production sample for aldrick robinson but one of the stats that really jumps out at you is that he's got 2.24 yards per route run which is a top 10 figure if you would have had enough snaps to qualify so this is a player that can produce in small sample sizes he you know would be a, a role player but he's probably not going to be when you think small not necessarily in the slot He's going to probably be some of that that deep speed component that you would think a good one would fit in in Shanahan's offense. So it, this it, of all the wide receivers that we've signed so far, and this includes the DeAndre Carter signing. Uh, he is another smaller guy from Sacramento State. He was signed before the start of free agency. Would you say that Aldrick Robinson, you think, has the best chance to have an impact of the wide? I mean, outside of Pierre Garçon, because yeah. we know that he's effectively the number one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but Aldrick Robinson, outside of Pierre, has the the biggest you think he's going to have the biggest impact for the 49ers offense uh, under Shanahan in year one? I think so. I mean, it's it's kind of, it's tough to peg down because they have so many guys right now on the roster that are, uh, you, they probably have, you know, when you see, if you lock down Garcon's role, it kind of each of the other spots at receiver, I mean, you have three, four guys that are all going to be competing there. And I don't know that there's a ton of separation in, in terms of, you know, track record there. But I, I, I will say definitely that Aldrick is, uh, probably among my favorites of that group. And I would be surprised if he didn't carve out a fairly significant role. 
moving on down the second wave line, you've got tight end Logan Paulson. It just remember it, every time I see his name, I just think his name was Robert Paulson. That's the only I thing I can think of. Yeah. I know <laughs> almost nothing else about him. Um, yeah. But that like that was the, what I tweeted out too. like as soon as the signing, I was like, I got nothing else. But all I can think of is his name is Logan Paulson. His name if you have not is se- Logan Paul. <laughs> if you have not seen uh, Fight Club at this point, you need to go do that. Go watch yeah. Fight Club. Put us put us on pause. That's the benefit <laughs> of podcasts. Yeah, stop. Just us. go ahead and like, hit the pause shit, button. We'll be here when you get back. We'll be here when we get back. You promise. Uh, cannot confirm whether or not David will have puked all over his green hoodie, but uh, it's it's actually not a, it's a it's a zippy. Let's be real. It's a it's yeah, a three no quarter zip. Yeah, there you go. There's no hood. Yep. But he so tight end Logan Paulson, he is a run blocking specialist. And based on the way our tight ends were run blocking last year, this is sorely needed because (laughs) Garrett Selleck was complete and utter trash as a blocker. You've got. uh, (laughs) Oh, man, it's like the the tight ends. Well, Vance uh, McDonald's short arms like, yeah, it just his he's not very good uh, is when it comes to blocking, at least. So he and he has the seventh highest run blocking grade among tight ends in 2016, um, and and he's had an above average run block grade in each of the past four seasons. So he definitely brings an element that the 49ers are going to need, and he fills a role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very specific role. Like he's going to be a part time player. Um, he's he's very unlikely that he's going to catch a lot of passes. Um, but you know, he's going to be able to come in. Shanahan does like to use a lot of multiple tight end sets. They like to go. To some of those heavy personnel packages, you know, that we kind of saw uh, in, in the Harbaugh days. Um, so some of those things are going to be kind of coming back and that's where he's going to fit in. You know, he's going to be able to uh, come in there, like do his job, be, you know, almost like a, a sixth offensive lineman, so to speak. Um, and th- that's what we're getting from him. And he's good at that position. And, you know, again, they're not really um, paying him a whole hell of a lot of money. So, yeah, this is another one of those moves that. We're getting some familiarity in. We're, we're bringing our guys into this uh, system as we overturn this roster. And, and he's going to be, um, you know, someone that, you know, can help. And just another one of the guys that's going to be able to help kind of teach this system to the, you know, either uh, current players or the guys that they're going to be adding via the draft. When you, when you think of the players so far that the 49ers have added, and, and we're going to get to the other ones here in just a minute, but it's, it's not surprising to me that most of the players are somewhere near, you know, 29, 30, 31 they're players with experience in in Shanahan's offense. I mean, part of the fact that they're that old has to do with just free agency in general, right? You're not you're not going to get the the prime years of a player uh, early on in their career in free agency, typically, anyway. But this to me feels a lot like fill, not just filling a void talent wise, which the team is definitely doing, but filling an, a veteran experience gap and a hole that this team just doesn't have with players that have experience in a system that they're trying to implement. And in two, three years, these players are going to be gone. I mean, the Logan Paulson deal is a one-year deal for a million. It's one year. Basically, it's like, look, we're going to rent you for a year so you can teach maybe the younger guys how to play tight end in the system. And then, you know, either you gone or maybe you have a great year and you stick around. You know, but but these are very much... It feels to me like they're creating or trying to pick players that are not only going to benefit the team in some role, but will also help establish a culture that the new younger players will then grow into. And then in two, three years, you've got, you know, better talent, three years in a system, and you really begin to see the uh, competitive team out on the field. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at a lot of these signings, right? And they're they're all 
bridge guys pretty much like they they are guys yeah. that are that are there to kind of one you know they need bodies we, we talked about the number of unrestricted they still don't have a whole like roster <laughs> yeah like they they um you know had one of the lowest totals in terms of guys under contract when free agency started so they they, they needed to add bodies um and so you there were always going to be like a lot of names involved in free agency and there a lot of you know acquisitions but it, it wasn't always going to be big guys. And so it was, you know, again, getting guys in there that we know, like you mentioned, that kind of can help establish the culture we want to establish. And also there's some semblance, I think, you know, as enticing as it is sometimes to say, hey, we're in rebuild mode. Let's just kind of clear out all these veterans and go all young players and hope that we can kind of grow with this young group together. Right. We're going to put just a bunch of dudes like on their first on the rookie contracts out on the field and it's going to suck initially. But um, you know, we're, we're just going to kind of hope they grow together. It doesn't really work as well that way. You kind of need at least some veteran pieces that are kind of intermingled in with that to really properly evaluate your young guys and, and, and be able to help, you know, help you determine who you're going to extend and like who's going to actually be kind of these core building blocks in the long term. So, yeah, I think that uh, that's kind of been the approach. They're not tied to any of these guys long term, which I think was really uh the the big hope for me going into free agency was just don't you know tie up any, any sort of significant money four or five years down the road when when hopefully your roster is in much better shape now we've also we're, we're continuing the parade of chicago bears quarterbacks because we've got good old matt barkley who's coming in on a two-year four million dollar deal with five hundred thousand of those dollars guaranteed he's only played 495 career snaps 412 of them came in 2016 when he was the Bears starter for the final six games. He replaced Brian Hoyer after Brian Hoyer broke his arm. So, I mean, it's not like the Bears quarterback situation is amazing. So what is it that the team saw in Matt Barkley that they were like, I mean, okay, yeah, we'll uh, we'll bring you in to be a backup or maybe the third quarterback. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he he looked decent, you know, during that last stretch. So, I mean, it was basically... The last six games of 2016 was really the most significant time. I mean, he he was in for a couple games uh, in Philly in 2013, and it went very poorly. He was really, really awful in those games. Um, Didn't and, he throw like six interceptions across those games? Or it was like uh, he it was, was in some there for certain two games, and I think he threw four interceptions. Yeah, which is uh, oh, don't worry, we're we're gonna get there. We're gonna touch on those interceptions here in a moment. <laughs> Um, but, but I think, you know, he showed enough and, and that was, you know, he had a chance to kind of sit on the bench for a few years and he did look much better when he was out on the field last year over those final six games. Um, so, so I think, you know, you look at the cost, obviously we're not even paying Brian Hoyer all that much money to begin with, but it's very clear in the disparity between his contract and Barkley's that they, they very much expect him to be kind of the number two guy, uh, and, and be the backup there. So you start looking at, when comparing him to like rather than now is you have to worry about him as your starter right compare him to some of those backups and i think he's a decent backup somebody that's kind of now proven recently that he can come in for a small stretch of games if needed um and and not be completely awful so i think that's you know really all you're hoping to get out of your backup um you start looking at some of the the numbers right so i'm not going to pretend that i studied like matt barkley and watched all those games and all those dropbacks like just not happening right now for for a backup quarterback so you know you you dig into the data a little bit and kind of look at the numbers that he produced during that stretch um i think one he actually had a very similar adjusted completion rate to colin kaepernick um so 71 percent there 
ranked 26 out of 37 qualifying quarterbacks. That was just barely below cap. He had a uh, cap was at 71.2. So that kind of gives you an idea as to how frequently he's putting the ball in a position where it's catchable for his receivers. Now that adjusted completion rate, of course, adjusts for like drop passes and spikes right. and throwaways, right? That That's why it's adjusted completion. So that's why the number is going to look and feel a little higher because you're going to look at, you know, cap and Barkley stat sheet and you're going to see their percentage quite a bit lower. It's because it's an adjusted rate that basically doesn't penalize the quarterback for things that they're either doing because of game situation, like throwaways, or wide receivers just not catching the ball. Yeah, so rather than your, you know, like with completion percentage, right, your top numbers are maybe you get somebody that's flirting with, you know, 70% or something like that, but your good numbers are are generally like in the high 60s. Average, I think, last year in the NFL was like uh, around 62, 63, if I remember correctly. Uh, with these adjusted numbers, all that kind of skews up a little bit. So Sam Bradford was actually the leader last year at just shy of 81%. And kind of your median mark is in that 74, 75 range. So yeah, all those are going to be a little bit on a, on a higher scale. But um, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't awful there. I think um, one thing that's interesting too, especially in comparison to the 49ers quarterbacks of last year, is that he actually threw deep quite a bit, which was something that we we kind of talked about um, pretty often in, in terms of both Cap and Gabbert really not being that willing to stretch the ball downfield, and and that was a big reason why Torrey Smith, you know, wasn't really as much of a factor because they just didn't have guys that were willing to throw those sort of routes. Um, Barkley actually during that six game stretch threw it deep quite a bit, so fifteen percent of his passes traveled twenty yards or more in the air, um, which was uh, like a top five, top ten mark. Um, uh, among quarterbacks last year. And he actually had uh, a pretty solid adjusted completion rate. So it was 48.5, which was ninth out of the 34 quarterbacks. The problem, though, is that, uh, as as you kind of see with Barkley, turnovers were an issue. So he also had five interceptions there, and that dropped his passer rating down to 48, which uh, was only better than Brock Osweiler and Blake Bortles, which is not exactly company that you would like to share in much of anything that's look straight up get mba traded <laughs> just to absorb a, a salary hit kind of numbers yeah like that's yeah it's 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 not great when those are the names that are, are kind of in your vicinity there for any given uh a stat so um that was yeah something that you know again it's it's somewhat encouraging that now that they have guys like aldrick robinson marquise goodwin that can stretch the field that they have a quarterback actually that might be willing to take some of those throws if he ends up um, you know, getting into the game due to injury or whatever. Um, but it's uh, the, the how well those passes work out is kind of, you know, a bit up in the air. Now, it does look, though, like he was better with play action, which, again, also fits into the Shanahan system. His completion percentage with play action was 11 and a half points higher than without play action. The six, and this is not adjusted. This is kind of as no, oh, no, this is this is indeed adjusted. 69% no, this, is, this versus, is actual. Completion oh, this is straight up here. Yep. So nope. six, 69% versus 57 and a half percent. Uh, which is, I mean, that's a pretty significant delta, and that's the second highest improvement is yards per attempt, also went up by 2.3 yards. So, I mean, you look at his passer rating as well with play action, and it was 94.4 with play action, 61.9 without. We've talked a lot about Shanahan's offense in the past, and it is one that relies on the play on play, the play action pass a lot. So, when you think about you know a backup quarterback with upside ideally a backup quarterback comes in and wins you a couple games and, and at least steadies the ship and doesn't lose any for you. And it seems, it seems like that's exactly the kind of player that Barkley is. He's going to be able to come in, work within the system, 
and and maybe maintain and certainly not be losing any games for you unless he's in there for extended action, in which case he's probably going to throw you eight interceptions. <laughs> and that's and, and so that's kind of like rounding out some of the numbers that looking at there. I mean, there's he's a, he's a backup quarterback for a reason. Right. And, and that's really comes down to, I think, two things that really stick out there. And that's one that he 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 struggled under pressure quite a bit. So um, his passer rating under pressure last year was twenty six. Um, which was dead last among the, the the 37 qualifying quarterbacks for that, um, just barely beating out Glenn Babbert for that worst spot. Um, uh, there's a name I haven't heard in a while. Good old Glenn oh, Babbert. I'm so happy I don't have to ever watch him play football again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and the other thing is, is again, the turnovers. Mentioned it kind of at the top there. Um, that's really been kind of the the main thing for him that, that he's really struggled with is he's turned the ball over a shit ton. Um, you know, again, the four interceptions, I believe it was um, in just two games when he was uh, when he came in for Philadelphia in 2013 uh, last year in those six games, 14 interceptions uh, across 216 attempts. That's a 6.5 percent interception rate. And so just for comparison, I, I mean, he makes Ryan Fitzpatrick look like a fucking game manager like dude's just the most conservative quarterback out there uh compared to what we're seeing from matt barkley so uh, i mean normally like you know your your elite guys in interception rate are down under two percent usually league average is is you know a little over two 2.2 2.3 that kind of ballpark so uh he is turning i mean it's a small sample again so those numbers you know you're going to get some more uh, kind of absurd numbers in there every once in a while, but it, it's definitely been a big problem for him. Avoiding those sort of mistakes is is really a big reason why he's not uh, getting a starting opportunity at this point. So the the final kind of player we're going to spend really any time on is going to be the re-signing of defensive lineman Chris Jones, and he really is kind of an interior defensive lineman. He played defensive end in the 49ers three four scheme last year. He was a mid season kind of pick up and he helped the run defense a little bit, but <clears throat> when I say help the run defense a little bit, I mean, you know, he made basically abysmally terrible, just slightly below average and not even yet watchable. So it was, but, I it mean, was putting, a low bar to clear. Um, yeah, it really was. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the first time you go through a limbo bar. It's like <laughs> you, you don't even maybe have to duck. Uh, and, and then it gets a little harder. Uh, and so I think that, this is someone who, if all goes well, has trouble making the roster. But you never know, depending on how things shake out. He's someone who who can do some things, depending on whether or not um, you know he he fits in a scheme and whether or not we have other talent that can push him off the roster. Ideally, we do have other talent that pushes him off the roster. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, hopefully, this is a guy that's that's you know not that you're not relying on to you know be a significant part of your rotation or you know even be on the roster like. Now that you have this kind of scheme switch, you know, the the interior defenders and you kind of group all them together. I mean, it's basically all of the defensive linemen that the 49ers had uh, on the roster now are kind of lumped into this interior defender group, you know, that where you're going to be looking at them uh, as defensive tackles. Mostly, you know, I think Buckner Armstead there, there's, you know, one of those guys is going to kind of end up at that strong side defensive end spot. Um, but for the most part, these guys are, are kind of competing for a couple positions and I, d- I just, yeah, I, I kind of have a hard time seeing him making the 53, but you know, again, they, they need bodies. They need guys to come in and compete. They need to, to get to that 90 man roster for training camp. And he is one of those 90. 
So rounding out the the second wave of free agency, you've got linebackers Brock Cole, Dakota Watson, and safety Don Jones. I think really the takeaway for these guys is that you spelled Dakota D-E-K-O-D-A. Like that's, he, he immediately vaults into the top five for all name team here for the 49ers. Um, th- these are special teams guys. These are your Blake Costanzos. They're, they're the players who are going to come in and, and do well on special teams. And maybe you have a, a fan favorite in there or two, but that's really where they provide their value. And then finally we get to David's favorite signing. David's absolute favorite signing. I can guarantee it is kicker Robbie gold. I mean, that's got to be your favorite one, right? I mean, he's a kicker. That's uh, that is a fact. And you need one of those on the roster, uh, I, I suppose. So he's that he is that person that is the kicker so, on the roster. Robbie Gold. Here's why I think the Robbie Gold signing is good, at least in your eyes. And that's because we got probably a similar skill set kicker at like a million less a year. Because I think Phil Dawson was going to get like 2.6 million or something stupid like that. And I think Robbie Gold is clocking in at, at 1.3 million. I'm looking up his contract right now. But in the meantime, would you like to know the funnest of fun facts for Robbie Gold uh, oh, yeah. right now? Let's, let's hear it. Uh, he is the oldest player in terms of accrued seasons on the 49ers right now. He's got 12 accrued seasons. Uh, he is basically old man river and, and yeah, he gets 1.5 million base, uh, guaranteed 500,000 of that's guaranteed and then 2 million in 2018. So, I mean, it's basically a kicker. You need one and this is yep. exactly what you do. You don't draft one in the second round. You, like, nope. uh, you, like, you don't Aguayo. draft one at all. Like that's, let's yeah. be clear that you don't draft one. They may be people, so, but they're not drafted. All right. Like, so trivia fact. So if Robbie Gold is the most tenured player, who is the second most tenured player? Not necessarily 49ers years, but just years in the league in general. Currently on the roster. Roster. Uh, Joe Staley? No, that's a really good guess, but no. Offense or defense? Defense. Ooh. Um, Yeah. Man, I Kermaine Brock. No, no, that's a good one. That he's got seven accrued seasons, uh, which is which is about where some of our oldest folks are. I mean, you got yeah, seven I mean, like seasons Bowman's for Brock, like right around there. Um, Zane Beatles is seven. Uh, Staley, you were right; he's third most tenured. That would be ten accrued got seasons. Rid of the th- oh, uh, Ahmad Brooks. Yes, the one. That's exactly I, right. See, he's already been cut in my mind. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> he's just sta- yeah. he's your starting Sam, bro. He is your starting Sam <laughs> linebacker. Shit, he's gonna survive another goddamn he, offseason. He's been on the. He's been like dude number. You're building the the cap casualty list for each of like yeah. the last three off three seasons, years. and I he's know. number one. And he's survived every time. He survived every all the coaching changes. Like what the fuck? What sort of like shit does he have on Jed York? Like he's got a sex tape of Jed York or some shit like that. And that's the only explanation. Like, I don't I I don't get it. I don't know. This fool is going into the final year of his deal. He signed a forty million dollar deal, a forty million dollar deal in twenty twelve. He's going to and he's going to see every single dime. Oh, my 
every single he's dime. The fourth high, he's got the fourth highest cap hit um, this year, and it's just like you can it's ridiculous cut him and basically pay him like eight hundred and fifty thousand. Um, he survives. He survives offsides. He survives. But wasn't he the guy who broke a bottle over someone's head? Yeah, he's just like uh, he's not even that good. Like he's he's competent. Like he's fine. But he's also dude, old competent and, on this team goes a long way. But he not he also fourth highest paid player. What the? F- hey man, yeah. you got you got. Yeah, I guess those six sacks. What he averages at this point? Uh, this if he gets six sacks this year, he'll average like I don't know over a million dollars a sack. <laughs> which I you mean, won't get six sacks because they're they're not going to use them the same way. But yeah, I just thought that was uh, indeed a, a really funny, just kind of, you know, Hey, whatever. It's four ers 11 years. I'm on Brooks <laughs> supplemental draft least, Cincinnati. At, at the very least, like this is our last year, right? They're not going to extend him or anything. Oh God. Him. I hope not. Uh, I hope not. But let's get to the, the kind of the meat of the discussion, which it's probably not going to be even a meaty discussion. It's just something I thought was interesting that I wanted to address. And that's, the idea of valuation of players, positional scarcity, and why analyzing free agent signings requires a bit more than just simply answering, is that player good? We've talked quite a bit about the different components of signing a player. And we, we talked to Dan Hatman a couple of weeks ago. He's the director of the Scouting Academy. And you know he's a former personnel guy. He's, he's worked with a lot of NFL teams. And he talks about how a successful, you know, kind of scout of a player and a successful GM will do two things really well. They will evaluate a player. How well does player X do his job? This is a lot of what you see out with the 49ers. I mean, we just talked about Ahmad Brooks, right? How well does he do his job? He is, you know, a, a marginal starter at this point. He, he can produce, but he's someone you ideally want to replace. But then you also have the valuation, and that is what the player is worth. So those two things make up how you should process really any player when you're talking about free agency or really contracts in general. This is why rookie quarterbacks are so valuable, because if they're good enough to start like Russell Wilson was, you can get away with a starting quality quarterback, and you're paying him, I don't know, less money than you know one roster bonus that Ahmad Brooks saw in 2012. Uh, actually, the 500K is less than his roster bonus this year for Ahmad Brooks. Like that's, and, and, and you know, so value, evaluation is important. How well does he do his job? And then valuation is how, what is that player worth? And successful organizations are really good at both, but they place a high importance on value because you can create a roster of really good players. But if you pay each one of them, $15 million, you're literally just not going to have enough money. You're going to have constrained resources in order to field an entire team. So the best teams are able to maximize value, get good players, and pay them you know, kind of below market rate. So a value or a thing that is important here, a concept that's important here, is the idea of positional scarcity. It's just the idea that some positions are a bit more difficult to find or they're a bit more important on the field. And so for whatever reason, there there's less supply. And so all of a sudden prices begin to go up. Yeah, I think you when you start talking about positional scarcity, right? And, and I think that's a big part of the valuation piece. Like valuation, 
uh, I think is something that is is very difficult to grasp. Like it, it's a it's a hard thing to talk about. It's a hard thing to to really explain well. I think, um, you know, and, and it's uh, and it's hard to do well. Like I mean, you don't see like there there aren't a lot of NFL general managers that really do this well. Like that that really understand the value of players and, and kind of get that piece right. And those are the teams that you know the teams that do are the teams that are consistently successful for. A, a long period of time, you know, they're, they're your Patriots, they're your Packers, they're your Steelers, you know, these teams that have been, been good for seemingly like decade plus. Um, and, and so you start looking at that positional scarcity piece, right? And I think there's two things, um, that, that really come to play there. One, it's that some positions are just flat out more important, right? They're, they're more important to your success. And then two, it's dip, it's more difficult to find talent at certain positions than others. Right. And so kind of the way that I break it down, I'm interested to hear your thoughts and, and see, because I think w- the general flow of, of this scale, I think, is is basically hard to argue with. But, you know, you can you can kind of maybe flip a couple of the positions here and there. So kind of the way that I, I, I think about positions in terms of their value going top to bottom. So obviously quarterback number one. Then I think you look at your edge defenders, right? Your pass rushers. That's your number two spot. Cornerback, I have number three receiver then you look at offensive tackle then your interior defensive lineman interior offensive lineman safeties tight ends linebackers running backs fullbacks so that's kind of the the when i think about positions and when i think about um you know building a team and and um trying to place a value on these contracts like when we're talking about all these players in free agency and and trying to determine whether these deals are good like that's kind of the scale that I use to, um, you know, place these positions in an order of importance. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with anything generally speaking. I think you do get into scheme-specific positional sure. scarcity yeah. because I do think, for example, that if we're talking about the Seattle Seahawks or now the San Francisco 49ers, safety becomes a bit more important than it is here in this list. Right. But if you're playing with two safeties deep and you don't need an Earl Thomas to make everything go then I think all of a sudden safety is, is not all that important. I think so that that would be, I guess, the only qualifier here. And it's not a huge qualifier. It's just something to note. You look at Seattle this year or this past year and, you know, Sherman is the best cornerback in the league. But when Earl Thomas went away, that defense really gave up a lot more yardage and a lot more big plays, yeah. despite the fact that they still had Sherman, because in that system, Earl Thomas was way more important than than Sherman and that's why I think you hear that the the Seahawks are okay with potentially trading him because they know they've got their centerpiece locked down and that's Earl Thomas they they can churn you know the Byron Maxwells and the and the sheds through that system they can find them that's not unusual or uncommon for them um so I, that's the only kind of quibble I would take with, with the list but other than that I think it's exactly right and this is exactly why I would be super upset with drafting a running back in the first round or doing something like that, because oh, there's yeah. some players, there's some <laughs> God, players that are just, I know, but uh, it, it's just too, there are some players and some positions that you can just find production at for whatever reason. I mean, you look at what the 49ers were able to do uh, with Sean drone. Like it, you, you look at his, uh, his six touchdowns and 
I mean, we got solid production out of a guy who was a street free agent. Yeah, freely DeWant, available. DeWant, like he, yeah, freely available. signed him at any point. Exactly. And this was just the, the basically the replacement level talent that is available. Correct. Dewan Harris, another running back that has gone unsigned in free agency because I don't think we tendered him at the restricted free agent level. But again, someone who looked like he had a little wiggle, looked like he had a bit of a spark, right? So yes, I, I understand the, the argument for Ezekiel Elliott, but at the same time, if you're building a team, right? Dallas was not, uh, they didn't have too many holes. They had a lot of this stuff figured out. Oh, right. But they you had- can't tell me. So this is, I, I love the, the Ezekiel Elliott thing because yes, he was, he a perfect fit for their scheme and what they had in place with the offensive line and really able to maximize that. Absolutely. But there's no way that you can tell me that they wouldn't be better if they had taken Jalen Ramsey at that spot and then taken, you know, filled in running back X that was freely available that run behind that monster offensive line. You can't tell me in a couple of years they wouldn't have wished that they made that move instead. Like Jalen Ramsey is at run at cornerback what Ezekiel was for them at running back. And, and corner is just a much more valuable position. It's harder to find guys there, right? Like, yep. that's the whole no, thing with, with running back, right? That. And I think this running back is the kind of the position that I think best illustrates this positional scarcity thing, because the reason that running backs aren't as valued, right, that they're at the end of that list, essentially, isn't because they're not important. And, and, and because, um, you know, the, the, the we don't have good players that are out there and, and they just don't fit in today's game. It's because there are so many good ones. Like there there is such a good supply of quality running backs available that the difference between the best running back that you have and then just kind of your average or replacement level quarterback, that gap is less significant than it is at other positions. And that's why it's not valued as highly. That's why spending like the, the idea of taking Leonard Fournette number two overall just like makes my fucking brain hurt because it's just not worth doing. Um, Agreed. Because the difference between him and what you're going to get with a guy in the the fourth, fifth round just isn't all that big of a deal. I agree. And, and when you, you, I think you said running back and quarterback, but you, I mean, we all know you meant running back. The distance between running back and running back, uh, the yeah, best r- running back, best and like running a mediocre and, running and back, and then the mediocre yeah. ones there. And then, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's it's not it's not that big of a difference, right? Whereas you think about so so talk to me about like the first two, or not even talk to me, but like think if you're a listener right now, think of the top three running backs in the NFL right now, in whatever order you're going to put them, right? And then think of the like 13th, 14th, and 15th best running backs right now. And, and I see David, and he's, I can see it in his eyes. He's looking him up right now. Uh, and, and then do me, the, do me a favor and do the same thing with quarterbacks. Give me your top three quarterbacks in the NFL right now. And then give me your 13th, 14th, and 15th quarterback. The delta between those running backs is not nearly as wide. That gulf is not nearly as wide as the the gulf between you know Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, uh, and you know insert whomever you think third best is there, and you know fifteenth the fifteenth best quarterback. Yeah, I mean you know, it, start, it just like, that, that that difference is is huge. 
Right. And, and it's just, uh, and, and so that's it. And it's hard, you know, it's hard to find those guys, right? Like that's kind of the point there with quarterback is everybody knows and that's why hard quarterback, quarterback is a $20 million a year, right? Yeah. Like that's why you do it. And it's hard to find, you know, it's hard to find good pass rushers. Like it, it really top tier pass rushers. It's, it's difficult to find corners are the same way. So that's why you see those positions kind of at the top of the scale. And, and it's, you can't, to, to me at least like have a conversation when it comes about like free agency and whether things were, you know, good and bad deals without taking this sort of thing into consideration. Right. Um, you know, there, there are a couple of the other, a couple of the other considerations really are age and positional career arc. You think of someone like Adrian Peterson. I think he's the prime example of age and career arc right now, probably one of the best running backs of this generation and I mean, still, I think the year that he had after he tore his ACL is is stupid. It's 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 the stuff of legends. It's 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 what you would write about if you were you know someone in Greece and you were writing a mythological book. Like he is a minotaur, basically. But you look at him now; he's unsigned, even though he is one of the best running backs of this generation. He's unsigned. Why? Because of his age and his positional and his positional career arc. Some positions just have a longer career. Running backs don't have very, very long careers. You usually have the, the age 30 or 31 cliff that you fall off of. I mean, and for running backs, it's like it can be earlier, right? It can be like yeah. you get past that first contract. Like running backs actually have their most value typically on that rookie deal. And after that, like yeah. a, most the, the wide majority of running backs are getting worse after that point. And then you think of quarterbacks and you've got quarterbacks that at age 38 are like, uh, should I come back for another year? I don't know. Maybe uh, if you're Brett Favre, you do that every single year until you're 41, right? So there, there are some, there are some positions that just lend themselves to longer careers. And so when you, when you put all that in, in a box and you think, okay, you, you not only got to look at what a player can do and whether or not he does it well, but then what is that player worth out in the open market? Some of that is determined by the positional scarcity. That's, this is why, you know, fullbacks don't get paid a lot and, you know, quarterbacks get paid, you know, 20 times what they get paid. So understanding that is, I think, important context to talk about two of the free agent deals the 49ers have signed. And it's Malcolm Smith and Kyle Juszczyk. And that's because these are players that we feel based on both positional scarcity and in one case because of how they play or in spite of how well they play are deals that if they are indicative of the way the team is looking to get built looking forward could be problematic for the 49ers. I think Malcolm so Smith is the, is really the, the big, big one. one here. Um, because as we'll get into juice is a little bit of a different situation, but I, I think when you start looking at Malcolm Smith's deal, right? 11 and a half million fully guaranteed. Um, and, and right now that makes him, as things sit, the eighth highest paid 4-3 outside linebacker. And if you even group just all of the the off-ball linebackers, right? So your inside backers um, in, in any scheme, and then your outside linebackers in 4-3, guys that are playing off the line of sc- scrimmage generally, 13th highest paid off-ball linebacker right now. Dude got more guaranteed money than Navarro Bowman got, than Bobby Wagner got. Like, That's the thing that threw me. Like when when I saw that, when I saw that he got more guaranteed money than Navarro Bowman and Bobby Wagner, I was like, I mean, come on, right? Because Bobby getting more guaranteed money than Bobby Wagner is just flat out stupid. 
Because Bobby Wagner is good at football. And now, that guy if, is good at what yeah, he does. And, and so, and it'd be one thing, right, if you were um, kind of the the pick of, like, you're the, the cream of the crop for this year's class, right? You're one of the better um, off-ball linebackers that were going to be available in free agency this year. It makes it, because that's just how free agency works, right? The cap's rising. Guys that e- each year you're going to kind of push those top-end numbers further and further up. That's just how it works. And so it would be one thing if he was that type of player but he's not like by all accounts he's not very good so you look at his previous deal right so there's a few things that i think that that are important to call out here one his previous contract was two years seven million dollars significantly lower than what he just got right but david here's here's the counterpoint right the counterpoint is but it doesn't matter we've got a shit ton of cap space we we still have i think at this point currently the high, and I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just being the sophist here. But we have the highest amount of available cap space still, even after the Malcolm Smith deal. And we can roll that over to next year because them's the rules. So why does this even matter? Why are we having this discussion about evaluation and valuation if we still – we could, we could literally go to a strip club with <laughs> you know stacks of hundreds and contracts – Rubber and just say, man. hey, Make it rain. you look like you can play guard. Let's let's see what you can do. Let's just go ahead and spray some money. And then, you know, Ahmad Brooks is going to take a video of it. And that's basically how he stays employed in San Francisco. Um, but you've got you've got you've got oodles of cap space. You've got so much. Why does it matter? Just give the guy some money. Bring him in. He's going to be a good locker room guy. So so we're going to get there. So it, it it does. It doesn't. It doesn't matter right now right so so first let's look at like why this is potentially a problem so again you look at his previous contract two years seven million dollars so much lower than what he just got from san francisco and and again by by i haven't seen a person yet that is like malcolm smith was really good in oakland right there there isn't somebody that's like yeah he was worth what he was paid there because of his performance with the raiders like by all accounts, he was very bad during his time there. You, you look at you know pretty much any anybody that's trying to do any sort of grading. NFL 1000 graded him very poorly. PFF graded him poorly during that time. Um, he's basically had one good season in 2013 when he was surrounded by one of the best defenses of all time, at least of the modern era. And uh, it, it, that's the one time that he's looked really good. So when you put those together, you put what his previous contract was, which is already not very great. um, And then you put the fact that he probably underperformed that deal. He's at the low point of his value. So there is no reason based on what we've seen from him recently to go out and pay him a lot of money because he just hasn't done anything to earn that. Then you throw in the fact that he plays a non-premium position, right? So we talked about that scale and, and where linebacker is in today's game. And while, you know, I think, again, like you mentioned, there there are some, um, you know, scheme differences there. And it's going to be a little bit more important for some teams than others. But generally, linebacker is toward the latter half of that scale. It's not a premium position. It's not like your pass rusher. It's not like your corner, not like your receiver, not like your tackles. Like it's down there in terms of value. So you kind of add all of those things together and that is is kind of why it's it's really kind of jarring to see that number um now to get back to kind of the big question right like why why is this a problem why does this matter because of the 49ers situation 
And well, like right now it it doesn't. And and I think we were pretty clear on that, um, you know, kind of going into free agency that like, look, it's going to be hard for them to kind of screw this up because of the cap space that they have. Like um, it, there, there are very few deals out there to even be made to, to really kind of put them in a position where they could be sitting bad cap wise, like in a couple of years here. Right. Um, the concerning thing is whether the 49ers feel like this is an exception, right. To get one of their guys in to, to help learn the scheme, to be a good locker room guy, whatever, you know, other bullshit that you want to throw in there. Like whether this is an exception right now as we're turning over the roster or whether this is a sign of how they value positions and whether maybe they don't have a firm grasp on, on how to value certain positions and where the league is at on certain positions compared to others. Because it, even if you value, you know, maybe linebacker for you, for your organization is higher on that list, maybe more towards the middle of the pack. If it's still lower on, for the rest of the league, like you don't go and pay it where you, know, you only pay what you need to, to get that player. You don't go overspend for the sake of overspending when you don't have anybody else out there. Like you can't tell me that somebody was out there competing to pay Malcolm Smith coming off a shitty two year contract where he played like crap. Um, you know, that th- they were begging to pay him top 10 money at his position. Um, well, this to me, th- there are two examples to me that highlight this point specifically, one of which, and we made fun of it earlier, one of which is Robert Aguayo. The, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers paid a premium price, a second round pick. And actually they paid more than that because they traded up in order to get, they traded up to get this fucking kicker. Like, come on. They paid a premium to get him when he probably would have been available in the fifth round. Like no one was going to run after this kicker and pick him up in the second round. And yet they paid a lot in order to get him. And, and that is an example I think of overvalued. Maybe they value kicker highly. That's okay. They have to understand though, that the other 31 teams don't value it that highly. And they've got to work within that market. Yeah. The second example for me is Torrey Smith. Torrey Smith was a great example when he signed with Philadelphia of a team that bought low on a player that can fit a role for that team. And they got a lot, I think, of positional value. Because when you look at the contract that Smith signed, I mean, he signed a pretty, I wouldn't say team-friendly deal, right? We're not talking about Colin Kaepernick level, but he signed a a total value Yeah, a total value of $15 million, right? He averages $5 million. Only $500,000 of his contract was fully guaranteed. That's the, you know, you're talking about someone who has, you know, a, a dead money number of $5 million if he gets cut after one year. That's nothing. The, the cap is going to go up $10 million at least. So you could just eat the cost just based on the cap increase alone if you cut him after one year. His cap number is going to be $5 mil in... 2018, 2019, and $4.8 million in 2017. I mean, this is a team that got a wide receiver that is at the low point in his career, is a free agent, and they paid him as such. And they're probably going to get more production than what they paid him based on what they gave him. That, to me, is an example of a good understanding of that player's value in a given market. Now, I don't think Smith fits that bill, and, and, I, and I think that you, you said it perfectly, David, when it's like, is this an exception? Or is this what they're going to do moving forward? Because if it's an exception, all right, screw it. It's an exception. You, you, know, you, 
it's one guy. You've got the space. It is what it is. And what what is I think what is what buoys my thought here is that they did they did approach other positions yeah. in a reasonable way. You know that you think of. I mean, we talked about it earlier at the top of the show. We talked about uh, Jeremy Zuta and his. You know, just basically getting him for you know swapping six round spots. You think of Aldrick Robinson. You look at Matt Barkley. They're able to do this, and and you know I think that while Prague Marath gets a lot of shit or Marate, sorry, but despite the fact that he gets a lot of shit, he's probably behind some of this stuff. So you know it, it's kind of a little bit in in Marate we trust, but you know Juice che- Juice's situation, Kyle Juszczyk, his is a little different, right? Because both in terms of structure. And in terms of p- potentially positional fit, his story is a little different. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think they're, you know, with him, you look at those initial numbers and, and like they are a lot of times in free agency, they're they're a little jarring, especially for a fullback, right? Four years, I think 21 million um, are, are the numbers that you see flashed out there initially. And that's that's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money for a fullback. Um, and then as you get more details in, right, it, it really turns out that this is, more of a year to year deal, you know, 7 million fully guaranteed. Um, it, it could be as little as a one year deal for like seven and a half million. Or, you know, if, if they decide to kind of pick up all of the options that you have along the way there, yes, it, it could eventually get to that four year, you know, 21 million figure, but you have that, you have the outs right at, at any point, which I think is important. Um, and then also you have to consider, what exactly his role is, right? How much is he going to be just a fullback? Um, how much is he going to be a tight end? How much is he going to play, you know, is, is effectively like a third down back? Um, you know, when you start adding in those those roles, if they can increase the amount of time that he's on the field relative to what he was in Baltimore, right? I, I think if if you're still talking about a guy that's only on the field for 40, 50% of your snaps, it's, it's a lot to handle, you know, especially when you consider like, I think he's a very talented player. I think he's a good player. I think Kyle Shanahan's going to be able to do some creative things with him. So it, I think it's a very good fit in that respect. But you still have to consider like, could they find these same sort of skills maybe at a lower cost? Um, I, I think the answer is probably like, I, I think you probably can find those elsewhere at a, a more reasonable cost. But again, all and of this that was becomes a case more palatable where... with those other if he starts filling those other roles, if he can be on the field more frequently, then, you know, it all starts to to make a little bit more sense. And, and this is a case, too, where you probably did have a suitor uh, for use check services. Suitor number three came in, apparently, and was like, hey, let's uh, let's do this. And so we we definitely overpaid. I think John Lynch made a comment about how expensive people would get when other people wanted them. I think it wasn't at Buffalo. I think that wanted use check and wasn't he rumored originally to, to sign Buffalo. And I, and I think basically what John Lynch and, and Marate said, it was like, look, let's go ahead and lay it out here on the table. You're probably going to get like a four year, $16 million deal from Buffalo. Here's 21 mil. The, the, like, here you go. My favorite thing uh, about that whole situation, which is like simultaneously funny and terrifying, um, was Lynch's comment. He's like, yeah, man, I like I learned real quick that if there, <laughs> there are other suitors, the price goes up fast. And it's like, oh, yeah, y- you just now learning this like 
Hey man, learn and on the so, job, okay? I mean, Learning it's kind of funny, on like hopefully it was job. just kind of in jest, but uh, man, learn learning on the job is uh, rough. Maybe you don't want to be quite that transparent. So hey, you know what? I I like it. Uh, so any final parting thoughts about free agency? Now that it's it's clearly done. I mean, you had wave one was done in like a day and a half, maybe, uh, and wave two is now basically over. I mean. Basically, right now, all you're looking for is whether or not Adrian Peterson signs somewhere, whether or not Tony Romo gets cut. Uh, you're, you're in a holding pattern until the draft. So are there any final thoughts that you think about 49ers free agency? Um, I, I think for me, uh, I was mostly like uh, the Smith contract was really the only one that I would point to as one that I kind of had a significant issue with. Um, I think beyond that, they did a good job. Like they, they did what I was hoping they would do, which is one, uh, they, they didn't go crazy at the top of the market. You know, you didn't see them going after guys uh, that were regarded to be the best in the class there and giving them just like absurd amounts of money and, and trying to think that they can fix this thing overnight. Right. And, and kind of get a, a more competitive team um, on the field in 2017 than they're really ready to do. Um, so that was all encouraging, you know, the fact that they didn't, um, decide to go after a quarterback at, at, at any cost, you know, like to, to decide that we're going to give up the farm to go get Kirk cousins or, um, whatever it may be. The fact that they realize, uh, at least it, it seems that they have some time with this thing that they don't need to rush the quarterback decision. So I think the overall approach for the, for this free agency period was uh, about as good as you could ask for. I mean, um, again, some of these guys, I think a lot of these guys probably aren't going to be, you know, on if you, if you look three, four or five years down the road and, and you're hoping that, OK, that's when they're starting to get in playoff contention. You, you probably don't have too many of the guys that they've added here um, is, is significant contributors on, on that team. But these are kind of, again, all the, they're all kind of these ultimate bridge guys. They're going to help them, you know, turn this roster over, which I think was really important and kind of, uh, you know, start building up from scratch. I, I guess my final thought really is just that winning in March is usually never good. Yeah, but it still feels good. It still feels good right now. Like, and the thing it, is, it, too, is like I don't even know that in a traditional sense, like what the teams we won, that you yeah. like, I, I haven't seen really the 49ers on many like winners of free agency list right i i think right. for what we would hope and and what uh is is a good strategy long term they are winners of this kind of free agency period um but yeah they didn't do the things that that normally flashy free agency right? yeah the big the big guard you know kind of the, the big dollar guard deal or you know i mean really our, our biggest deal was pierre garçon and yeah, I, I'm I'm okay with that. I like that deal. Yeah. I, I think you know, just based on what what little film I've seen on him, the the dude looks good. He really does. He's fun, man. And He's a lot of the fun. way dude, the way that he gets in and out of his breaks is stupid. It's really it's really just stupid. But yeah, I mean, it just that that's kind of my takeaway. Is I like adding players, uh, and I got to figure out what I'm going to do with my Colin Kaepernick jersey. That's really <laughs> really what I got to figure out. It's gonna, it's gonna uh, sit in the closet with the rest of them. I'm going to send it to Somalia in a care package. Uh, so let's get to let's get to the, the last segment here. And that's really going to be lessons that we've learned so far from the Scouting Academy. So if you're not familiar, David and I have been going through the Scouting Academy, which is an online basically scouting school that teaches you how to scout based on some principles that have been tried and true in NFL front offices. 
uh, Jerry Angelo, who's a former Bears GM, is uh, one of the people who gets on and, and kind of teaches us through videos. Dan Hatman's really the guy who runs it. He's been on the show a couple times if you've listened to all the Dan Hatman episodes. They're great if you haven't listened to them. I think they're still relevant now, even though they were about the general manager role. And, and this was before we hired John Lynch. They're still definitely relevant if you're interested at all in front office stuff. But we've been going through the academy now for, shoot, like two and a half months. Um, yeah, two months and what, two weeks mid, about. Mid-January? Mid-January. Yeah. Yep. Two and a half months. And and so we're we're far enough in and that we feel we can give some some general learns. And really the, these learns are in the context of the next few months because the next month is really going to be all about the NFL draft. And we're going to talk a lot about draft prospects and looking at what they can do, what they can't do, how they project. And I think it's important to contextualize a lot of those comments now because I know I personally have learned a lot from going through the Scouting Academy exercise. Um, and, and I think it will help really inform and color the discussions that we have moving forward. So, David, let's just really kind of quickly go through some of the biggest takeaways that you've had from the Scouting Academy so far. Um, and, and let's start with what you think your biggest takeaway so far is. Um, I think, yeah, so so there's a lot of things uh, that, that really are, are there that it, it's it's kind of a combination of reinforcing things. So you kind of go into it, at least from my perspective, right? Like um, I, I felt like going into it, I had done a decent amount of research, like, right. It wasn't, it wasn't my first like experience with rodeo things, you know, trying to like, the word you're looking for, for is rodeo. To, uh, to evaluate <laughs> players, right? I, I at least tried to start learning some of this on my own without necessarily instruction from, you know, people that have done it before in the league or, um, or, or what have you. So, um, it was nice to get kind of one, some confirmation on things like, okay, I haven't been doing everything wrong. And there are some things that I, I learned previously that, that are holding up and that I can kind of apply to this going forward and feel a little bit more confident in that. And then also too, like it helps kind of recalibrate things, you know, like, okay, maybe I was looking at this one thing in a particular way, but, uh, you know, they, they brought up some good points and it just kind of helps clarify, I guess, some, some situations there with players and certain traits to look for, uh, and all that. And I think one of those things that in terms of, uh, kind of re clarifying and kind of, uh, you know, bringing back more into focus is, is kind of this idea that you really want to focus more on what a player can do. Right. And and I think this is something that comes up with draft time a lot because it's hard from a media standpoint where you're you're kind of stuck in a situation where you have to evaluate or try to evaluate all these players in this vacuum. Right. And and, you, you know, you see a lot of guys that are ranking players and they're doing it in a very general sense, whereas when teams are building, you know, their boards, they have a very specific criteria generally that they're looking for. Right. So they may, you look at this like cornerback class, for instance, um, in, in, in this draft is there's a lot of players, a lot of very good players. Like people are very, very high on this cornerback class. And there's a lot of different types of corners here. And you're going to have some teams that just flat out like eliminate some of those guys because they don't fit what they want to do, right? Maybe some guys aren't, you know, they they don't meet the height requirements that they need from their corners or they they don't meet, you know, certain measurables or or whatever and maybe these are still good players. They can still fit in other schemes. They're just not right for that particular team, right? And so I think having that sort of difference and that sort of perspective between how teams approach it and kind of this 
uh, lesser version of the way that you have to approach it from the outside and kind of this more broad general perspective, uh, I think is really interesting. So I think, yeah, keeping that in mind, like focusing on what they can do, how does that fit in into the specific scheme, you know, that the player is, is, is going to be utilized in. These are all, I think, some of the most important things to kind of focus on around this time. You know, I, I had the same takeaway. For me, it was it was really focusing on what he can do. And I would say that what Scouting Academy so far has helped me do is it's helped me introduce nuance in the way that I look at players. I think that oftentimes I fell into a trap that most people fall into, which is a binary view of whether or not a player is good or bad. Are they good or are they bad? Are they Julio Jones or are they everyone else? Are they Tom Brady or are they everyone else? You know, are they elite or are they not? And what I've, I think what's, what it's, what's been reinforced over and over and over to me is that that's not football. There is more granularity to football than are you Tom Brady or are you not? Do you want Tom Brady? Absolutely. You want that guy. Do you want Julio Jones? Hell yeah, you want that guy. But chances are you're not going to find that guy. <laughs> right. And so how, how do you build a team around what players can do and then give that to coaches who then understand what they can do and then they maximize those talents? That to me was the biggest takeaway is that this is not a binary evaluation. I, I love the idea of a scheme fit. You know, I, I've been, when I watch wide receivers, I look at a couple of the wide receivers that were on the list. I think Marquise Lee and another one was Devontae Adams. To, you're going to say, oh, yeah, Devontae Adams is good. Marquise Lee is bad. It's like, yeah, but you haven't really looked at why that's the case. It's like the way that – and this is where I think some of the positional traits come in. But the way that – when, when finally at the end of the report they say, all right, what's the scheme fit? It's like you've got to not just say, well, they fit in any scheme. They, they're good. They're bad. It's like how, how can a team leverage this player? If indeed you want to leverage this player and, and that to me, I think was it, it's uh, it was, you know, a little a little earth shattering because I think I did have a tendency to fall into they're good or they're bad. And to be able to say this is a player who can fit this specific role in this specific scheme means all of a sudden that every player becomes valuable at some level if you've got people who can take advantage of that value. And and that to me, I think, is heartening because it, it just means that it, it does. We would have discussions not to get too esoteric about this whole thing, but I know you and I would have discussions about the value of coaching and whether or not coaches matter. And, you know, we, we would kind of go back and forth about whether or not coaching matters or whether or not if you just put a bunch of talent together, it's going to, you know, put Tom Brady and Hula Jones together. And that's going to you're going to get magic irrespective of whether you're Jim Tom Sula or Bill Belichick. And and I think this to me reinforces a little bit that like, yeah, if you got to fill the cupboard with stuff and, and if you've got a head coach and a GM that are aligned on how to use the things that you're filling the cupboard with, uh, then that's that's pretty awesome. It's pretty harmonious and, and it works out. Yeah, I think it, kind of the I, I think with both actually the the coach argument there and, and kind of sticking with, you know, more player evaluation, you think of things on on this bell curve, right? And yeah, at the ends, right, you get those kind of special people, right? The the Bill Belichick's on the coaching end, on the bad end of that bell curve, you have the Jim Tom Sewell's and the Mike Singletary's and whatnot. 
And then when you're looking at players, right, obviously you have... Like, I hate that those are all current examples. I oh, hate yeah, that you it's... can just pull Dennis Erickson, Mike Singletary, Jim Tomsula. It's, it's been, <laughs> it's been rough. It. It's been real bad. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, you, again, with players, you know, you have your your Julio Joneses and your Tom Brady's and your Adrian Peterson's, guys that are, that are going to be Hall of Famers, right, um, that they kind of epitomize. They're, they're the example at their position. The reality is most guys aren't that and, and they fit kind of somewhere in this large, vast middle area of being an NFL athlete. And and they all kind of have these different strengths and weaknesses and, and a large part of what determines how well those players ultimately do is their fit within that organization, right? Their fit within, do they have the people around them that are going to make them better, that are going to allow them to do the things that they do well do they have a coach that understands what they do well and is able to put them in a position to do those things and kind of minimize the things that they don't do as well? Um, and and that's very important, again, for that that vast majority of the middle. And that was kind of my point always with coaches, right, is like you get to a certain point and, yeah, you have some bad ones on the end and there's going to be your kind of outliers there. But the, the vast majority of coaches are kind of in that that big middle area, right? And and there's not a ton of difference between the skills that they bring to the table. It's kind of about how everything fits together um, and, and the players that they have there. So I think you can kind of make that argument both directions. Um, one thing that was interesting too, that also, you know, in, in kind of this line of thinking of focusing on what a player can do. So going into it, um, one of the goals that I had to try to get out of this was I want to have a framework for evaluating players going forward, right? I want to kind of build, and, and that's one thing that they kind of really focus on too, is we, we want to try to teach you how to think about football, not what to think, right? We're not trying to to build this factory for Which pumping out robots. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I think it's awesome, by the way, because a lot of a lot of schools or things will just base, and, and I'm not talking just about football. I'm talking about life in general. They will say, follow this system right. and look for these things and everything will work for you. And this is one of the things I do appreciate about the Scouting Academy is that they say, look, we, we're going to give you a framework for evaluating talent. The important part is the process and, and the evaluation because ultimately your name's on the eval, right? Uh, and, and I think that that's a really, as, as a trained educator myself, I really appreciate that, that approach to teaching stuff. Definitely. And I think that's, you know, uh, was, was, I guess, one of our other big takeaways from it. But um, I wanted to kind of put my, you know, twist on it because there were certain things that I you know things that I felt that I learned going into this thing that um ways that I that I thought about football that I thought were still good that that I wanted to kind of maintain right so I wanted to take and I had honestly some skepticism about the way that kind of the traditional scouting world had worked because you look at NFL teams and you look at you know the way that scouting uh has gone for forever and and it's you know not always great like uh, that there's not a high success rate there. So I wanted to kind of get a mix of things, things that I kind of learned from more the analytic side of it and, and uh, kind of fusing those with this kind of scouting mindset to try to get the best of both worlds. And so I was trying to build this checklist, right? I wanted to eventually come up with a checklist of these are the things that I'm going to look for at each position, right? Do they do, you know, for a receiver, um, you know, focusing on like their release, right? Can they beat, uh, can they can they get off the ball with a speed release versus press? Can they win with power versus press? And just kind of you go down the line, right? Like, does he check this box? And kind of as I got more and more into it, 
I realized that I kind of hated that approach because you're you're evaluating against this idea of perfection, essentially. And everybody, for the most part, is going to fall short of that. And so you kind of end up where you're you're always, if you take that mindset into it, um, going to end up with a lot more negatives than positives, right? They're, they're almost always going to be more boxes they don't check than what they do check. And, and really, the important thing is not whether they can get off of, you know, press coverage in every way imaginable, but do they have one way of doing it effectively that they can do consistently and that's repeatable, right? Some guys are going to win with speed. Some guys are going to win with strength. Um, and, and it doesn't really matter how they do it as much as can they do it? Can they do it against NFL competition? And, and, and is it repeatable, right? So I think, um, you know, just taking that mindset and, and kind of, uh, applying it to all the positions and, and adjusting, you know, how I think about players, I think is something that this has really kind of given some clarity for me on. I think that's a really important point because it's, it's really easy to pick at what a player can't do. It's really easy to say, oh, they can't do this. Oh, they can't do that. Oh, they can't do this. Oh, they can't do that. And, and I think that what, what we've learned, and I think what we're saying here is that that's a pretty myopic way of looking at a, at, at a player's talent and looking at how a player can help you in the NFL. That doesn't mean that every player is someone you want to go after, but it does mean that you're going to identify a profile for what players are and what type of player you want. And if you've got people that can do that and you can maximize that, then, then you're in a better place. And, and that, I think, is, is it, it, it's almost like the optimist way of looking at players. And, and that fits more in line with just my general, the way that I want to exist when I look at stuff, because it's really, it's <laughs> yeah, really yeah. easy to pick at stuff. Oh, it's really easy to say like, that person sucks at this and that person sucks at that. And you know what? I'm going to do that sometimes. Right. Yep. But, but I think it's, it's very, it's, it's a lot easier to tear down the Lego castle than it is to build it. It's a lot, it's a lot easier. To, I, I played with a lot of Legos as a kid. <laughs> it's a lot easier to say, I'm going to go ahead and break this up than it is to actually build it. And that's what I feel like the scouting Academy did at least for me is to remind me that, no, you want to build, you want to see what this person can do because anyone can pick apart what they can't. Uh, and, and that I thought was super instructive. The, the other two things really quickly, cause I know we're, we're running out of time here, but one is just this idea of context, right? Dan really pushes us to not just tell him in a report that a player can do this, but a player can do this when, and a player who, can, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's part of context, yeah. right? Do, does this person do it on third down? Did they do it against Richard Sherman? Did they do it against man? Did they do it against zone? Did they do it, you know, along the sideline? Did they do it with an inaccurate pass? This is all context that helps you, again, bring a bit more granularity to how you evaluate a player. And, and I think that's super important, right? Because you think of the way that, a player performs against average NFL competition. You you would hope that they would succeed, but if they can do so against elite competition, all of a sudden things are going to be a little different. When I was watching Devontae Adams, I thought one of his best games that were on the docket of games that we had to watch was his game against Seattle. And and that to me was pretty neat, right? It's just what he was able to do to some of their coverage concepts, how he was able to to get Sherman to turn around and, and Sherman did a really good job of covering Devonte Adams whenever he was covering him. He did, but the things that he could do to attack the way that Seattle was trying to cover him, I thought was like, Oh shit. Okay. That means that you could probably do that 
against lesser competition. And and that's the kind of context. I mean, and, and you've got third down, you've got sidelines, you've got when the ball's away from his body, when the ball's coming into his body. That again, it, it just adds more color to your evaluation of a player because it's not just binary, good or bad. Yeah, and I think the other side of that, right? So you mentioned, um, you know, okay, if you can do well, you know, against kind of this superior competition, that's a good sign for his ability to do that against everybody else and and that sort of thing. But I think there's also value to, you know, players that can just win, like that are just average players, right? I think average has this sort of like negative connotation to it. And uh, the reality is, is like if you can beat half the players that are in the NFL at your position that you're going to be going up against, right? If you're if you're a cornerback and you can defend, you know, average or worse wide receivers. Well, there's a lot of average or worse receivers out there, right? You're going to have a role on a football team. Maybe you're not a number one guy. You know, maybe you're not somebody that that your team's relying on to take away the other team's top option or something like that. But you have a role and you have value to a team, right, at a, at a certain level. Um, and so I think that's important, too. And that's one of the things, like, I... So I'm I'm actually working on defensive backs right now is kind of the 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 position that I'm focusing on and submit a report and he was talking about a certain trait and Dan's like, well, who does he do this against? Right? Does he, is he do this against yeah. you know average competition or better? Does he do this against good competition, very good competition? Um, and, and so I think having that layer of things and and a lot of these you know when you see and when you say it. Um, you know, now kind of outside of things like it, it seems really obvious, right? Like, of course, you want to look at these sort of things. Um, but I think it's very different. Anybody that's tried to evaluate players, um, it knows that when you like turn on the film, it's it's not always easy to keep these things in mind. It's very easy to just like start rolling and watching it like you would a game on Sunday. And and like, yeah, you're going to notice the, the really good and the really bad things. You're going to notice the cornerback that gets an interception. You're going to notice the time that he gives up a touchdown. But, you know, on those other snaps, what is he doing? Um, and, and I guess that's maybe my final takeaway is if you're in as we kind of switch gears to looking at, um, you know, more draft stuff. Right. Like this is this is kind of be sort of the framework that we're using when we're talking about these draft prospects. Um, I think watching film is something that you have to have. You have to have a purpose when you're going and you can't just turn it on and say, I'm going to watch and kind of see what happens. Right. You have to know what you're looking for. You're not going to be able to watch everything at once or it's going to take you like fucking hours to watch a game like and you're just never going to get through it because you're trying to 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 absorb too much at once. Um, so I think, you know, you're going into it. You have to have a purpose. You're looking for certain things. Um, you know, when it comes to player evaluation, I start like when I when I first watch a play, I'm not even really looking at the player that I'm focusing on initially, like. So for a defensive back, using that as the example still, like I want to see first, what is the offense doing? What sort of, you know, passing concept are they using? How are they trying to attack the defense? Then I want to see what coverage is the defense in, right? What are they, how are they trying to combat that? And then I get to what is that player's role within that coverage? What is he trying to do? Like what should his assignment look like? And again, you you don't always know that for sure, but you can get a, if you have a good idea of coverages and in those assignments, you can get a decent uh, I, idea of what they're supposed to do, and then well, that to me was you look at that player, right? You look at okay, how well did he execute that? And that to me was the was one of my kind of biggest takeaways, which is the more you know about football, the better off you'll be when evaluating what a player can and can't do. 
And and this and this is honestly a limitation for me because I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm some kind of football savant, right? It's like there are plenty of people that I know that you know whether or follow on Twitter or whether I read what they write that know way more about football than I do, but they can add that context about what the defense wants to do, what the offense wants to do that helps them evaluate what that player should be doing or what they think that player's role is in that context. And that to me is, is a big deal. So I think that's, that's, you know, probably where we'll leave it. I know I wanted to get a little bit to competitive toughness because I know that was something that it came across as one of the criteria that we're supposed to use to evaluate a player. And initially David was like, this is stupid. Competitive toughness is a joke. And then he sent me a text like a couple weeks, like not even a week ago. And he was like, you know, actually, I think competitive toughness is is actually a real thing. Like that's that that's so that's a real so. Thing. I, I, yeah, let's let's touch on it. We got we got a little bit of time here. We 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 can <laughs> no, we, we can don't. Spend, We're already uh, way it's, over. It's fine. We had a week off last week. We gotta you know we have we have some extra words to get out here. Um, so competitive toughness and the idea is it's kind of this umbrella term, right? It's it's uh, players' mental toughness, is physical toughness. Um, does he compete like these sort of things? And, and these were Anquan Bolden for me would be the paragon of competitive toughness. And to me, like when I first yeah, I see this, right. And so they they kind of group things into what they call critical factors. And then you have position factors, right? So you have these things that you're looking at for all players, regardless of position, there's these kind of core set of things that, that you want to see in all your players. Um, and then you have, of course, things that are specific to what they're doing and what their position is. Competitive toughness is one of the the critical factors, right? Things that you're looking at at, at every position. Um, and to me, when I first kind of saw that, I was like, this is just typical scout bullshit. Like, you can't really, like, how are you supposed to pick this up on film, right? Like, I, I'm not trying to this, get into a guy's to me mindset. Was... I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm, like, uh, able to watch him play football and know what he's thinking and like this reminds me of the statement like he's got some dog in him i've i've, I've always <laughs> hated that thing like he's got some dog in him like i i don't one michael vick two like like what what does that even mean like what what, what are you trying to tell me right now um, and yet here we are talking about we're, we're converts we're talking about competitive toughness and so well i think what it is, is, is approaching it a little bit different, right? So I, I think ultimately what you're trying to get out of that is different than what I had in mind initially. Um, and, and I think it is like, ultimately there are kind of things that you look at that you kind of like to see in a player, um, that don't really fit with one of the positional traits, right? So like, as a, as a good example for me recently, one of the players I've been watching is LaMarcus Joyner, uh, slot corner for the, for the Rams. And, and I think he was a player that, I wasn't expecting to be as good as he is. I mean, dude's kind of a stud. Um, but there there are certain things that he does, right? Like that show you like it's it's kind of these more effort things, things where he's just kind of not a for he's a small dude. Like he's honestly not much bigger than me. He's like five eight uh and, and like under two hundred pounds, like it's like a buck eighty five or something like that. Um and he's going up against these larger receivers, like these big fucking dudes. And he just doesn't give a shit, right? Like he he's not backing down from anyone. You see him in the run game, like, you know, getting involved and tossing, you know, receivers are trying to block him out of the way. And like, that's the sort of thing where it's like, okay, this doesn't really fit all that well within like, I'm not going to obviously put that under like man coverage or, you know, um, his athletic ability or, you know, anything like that. Like it doesn't really have a spot when it comes to positional traits 
but it is something that is also kind of important, right? You want that from your defensive players. You want kind of that, uh, a little bit of nastiness and a little bit of attitude to those guys, because that kind of comes with the territory, especially with corners, right? You gotta, you gotta have guys that can kind of put, you're going to give up passes in the NFL. Like that's just how it fucking works. Like you're, you're not going to be as somebody that doesn't give up receptions. So you have to be able to put those plays behind you and move on to the next snap and pretend like that shit didn't happen. And uh, I think that's where kind of competitive toughness comes in. And it's, it's kind of a silly term. Like maybe I don't agree with, uh, you know, how I would label it necessarily like in a vacuum or something like that. But, but I think when you look at it the right way, um, and, and you do try to limit it to things that actually are evident on film, um, and not try to be like getting into a guy's head and wondering what he's thinking. Uh, I, I think that's where kind of the value for me has come in. Well, I think that's a, that's a good place to wrap it up because ultimately I think the takeaway is we've, we've learned quite a bit so far. We're definitely going to focus on what players can and can't do, how they fit schematically, trying to include some of the context when we're talking about the, the draft prospects that we're going to be talking about. And we're pretty pumped. We're excited about what's coming because we've got lots of draft picks, lots of players to bring on and, uh, and lots of things to talk about. So thanks again for tuning in. We've got, let's see, what's the next schedule looking to look like. I think we're going to be off next week, right? Yeah. So I think next week we might take uh, is kind of a, a prep week to, to get ready for, uh, get a chance to watch a little film on some of these draft guys and, and really jump into the first draft uh, podcast is going to be kind of, I think an intro to the class, like looking at some general strengths and weaknesses, and then looking at um, some of the guys that might be an option at that number two overall pick. Indeed. So that's, I mean, we're still trugging along here. There's no off season, not even for us. So we're definitely going to come with some of the NFL draft stuff. We'll talk about some player evaluation. We might even try and have uh, Matt Waldman back on to talk about some of the uh, underneath uh, or kind of undiscovered players because he does a lot of film study. Thanks again for tuning in. If you are listening right now, it's uh, apparently it's like tripod month. Uh, that's what all the podcasts that I listen to anyway are talking about. Uh, not where like you tripod, should, you know, like three legs. Thing. No, not like, like someone with a really big schlong, but like <laughs> uh, you should try a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so we'll, we'll see if we can jump on that and say, you know what, if there's a podcast that you like, whether it be ours or someone else's, uh, definitely let people know about it so they can go and try a podcast. Uh, my favorite, honestly, is uh, This American Life uh, or 538's Politics Podcast. Those are two that I love, love, love listening to. Uh, but share a podcast. doesn't even need to be our own. And if you are listening to us and you do like us, share a review on iTunes. Uh, people be finding it better because they get more ratings. It goes up the rankings. Uh, and all of a sudden, voila, there you go. Uh, we're so on iTunes. Leave us a review. We're on Google Play now. Yeah. So if you want to yeah, get us on the Androids, uh, and if you're on the Samsung and you want to catch your pocket on fire, you can go <laughs> ahead and do all that uh, to the sultry tones of uh, one David Newman. Uh, you can always follow me on the Twitter at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? That's uh, going to be at Newman NFL. That's right, Newman with two N's. Two N's. Don't get and twisted, y'all. That's Not right. N-A-W. And a U. Man of you, yeah, that's that's weird. You're just a weird, weird dude. I don't make the rules. Um, that's yeah, you don't make the rules. But thanks again for tuning in, uh, and as always, go Niners.
Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Kerryu, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.